y'all. This is Welcome to the End Times from Chipperish Media. I'm researcher and angel that guarded the Eastern Gate, Dr. Kelly Jones. And I'm story expert and the serpent whose first choice went down like a lead balloon, Lonnie Diane Rich. And we're here today to talk about the first three chapters of Good Omens. In the beginning, Dramatist Persona, and 11 years ago. In the paperback version, these are pages 1 through 64. All right, it's time to thwart a divine plan. Or a diabolical one. Semantics. Let's get to thwarting. All right, a quick recap of the reading before we dive in. These first three sections introduce most of the main characters and set up the story. It's time for the apocalypse, but a demon named Crowley and an angel named Aziraphale are going to try to save the world. The book opens with Crowley and Aziraphale in the Garden of Eden, right after the incident with the Tree of Knowledge and the banishment of Adam and Eve. Sort of an abbreviated take on the book of Genesis with a lot more snark. Then we shift into the story's present day, around 1990, as Crowley is summoned to take the infant Antichrist to a nearby hospital, where it will be swapped with the newborn baby of a wealthy Satanist couple, Mr. and Mrs. Dowling. Mr. Dowling is an American diplomat. Crowley, a modern demon who really likes the world, doesn't want to trigger the apocalypse, but he has no choice, so he reluctantly brings the demon baby to the satanic nuns of the Chattering Order of St. Beryl, as instructed. Baby swap shenanigans ensue, and the Antichrist is accidentally given to Mr. and Mrs. Young, who name him Adam. Mr. and Mrs. Dowling end up with Mr. and Mrs. Young's baby, who they name Warlock. We're left to wonder and worry about Mr. and Mrs. Dowling's human child, Baby B, but even though we aren't doing spoilers, I'll let you know that he's given to a family in the Young's neighborhood, and he's fine, because to quote Helena from Orphan Black, you should not threaten babies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we meet a girl named Anathema Device, descendant of the prophet Agnes Nutter and keeper of the world's only accurate prophecy book, and a boy named Newton Pulsifer who seems to be connected to that book or to one of the prophecies therein. Crowley and Aziraphale, now friends after 3,000 years together on Earth, agree to team up and balance the influences on Warlock, the human child they mistakenly believe is the Antichrist, to try to prevent him from coming into his satanic powers. They watch over him for 11 years and ensure he is educated in the ways of good as well as the ways of evil. Crowley and Aziraphale hope that they can stop or greatly delay the end of the world. But the arrival of the Antichrist awakens the four horsepersons of the apocalypse, and we meet each one of them briefly to get a glimpse of the evil work they're doing in preparation for Doomsday. This section ends just as Warlock's 11th birthday approaches. This is the day he will be sent a hellhound, come into his power, and start the apocalypse, which is scheduled to run from Wednesday until the end of the world sometime Saturday afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) You gotta love an apocalypse that stays on schedule. I know, seriously. (laughs) I mean, come on. Can we at least, let's just keep the standards up at least. All right, so we have lots to talk about. Yes, we do. And I thought we would start with prolegomena. I love that. I don't know what it means, but I love it. So I'm completely stealing this from Joshua Unruh, who mm-hmm. taught me this word, and y'all will hear about it in a soon-to-be-released new shiny <laughs> special podcast adventure. But basically, this is what you need to know at the beginning. 
So a prologue is the introduction to a literary work. Prolegomena is the introduction to a scholarly work. Uh -huh. But it's kind of like all the stuff that you want to know ahead of time. Uh -huh. And so I sort of cheated and went to the very end of the book and to the Google machine. Mm -hmm. But I thought it would be helpful to get some some context for this I book. I know, I like it. Yeah. And so um, Good Omens began as a short story, which I think is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Gaiman had 5,000 words that he titled William the Antichrist. <laughs> Which sounds like a Terry Pratchett kind of idea. So I'm really surprised that that came from Gaiman. Because yeah. Pratchett, Pratchett loves these kind of, you know, like absurd, you know, connections between things. And so like William the Antichrist is the kind of thing you'd expect from Pratchett. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So but apparently the whole idea of a demonic baby swap was what inspired mm -hmm. this whole book. But Gaiman couldn't figure out how the story would end, so he sent it to Pratchett. Mm -hmm. And he read it, and he liked it. And then, like, a year later, he called Gaiman and said, I don't know how it ends, but I know what happens next. Oh, I love it. And I think that's so cool, you know? It's so great. Yeah. And so they worked on it together. And this is, you know, pre-World Wide Web, pre, you know, right. all of that. And so they mm -hmm. mailed each other floppy disks and had really long phone calls and kind of lost track of who wrote what right which mm -hmm. i really love but the book was published in 1990 and they said in the back of the version that i have they have kind of some facts about how they wrote it but it mm -hmm. said that neil gaiman had the most influence on the opening and terry pratchett had the most influence on the ending which uh -huh. i also think is really really interesting yeah and they were really writing it to make each other laugh like they they weren't <laughs> even sure if anyone would want to publish it they're just having a good time. I love that. Yeah, but I found this really great interview on the BBC.com with Neil Gaiman, and he was talking about their book signings. Mm -hmm. And so they would write, have a nice doomsday on the books. <laughs> and then one of them would write, burn this book and pass it to the other who would write, apply holy match here. And I'm like, oh, God, like, <laughs> I would have loved to have been there oh, yeah. for that, you know. But creative collaboration is my catnip, and snark mm -hmm. is my drug of choice. Good writing yes. is my bliss. And so this <laughs> book is just so freaking delightful. Mm -hmm. And such a great example of love what you love and write what you want to read. Yes, absolutely. And I know, like, when we watched the preview for the show, like, one of the things that struck you was the love story between... Aziraphale yeah. and Crowley and kind of that friendship. Yeah. And I love that sort of being the main DNA for the whole yeah. book. Yeah. Between these two writers. It's just delightful. It is. It's really nice. I love that. Well, thank you for doing all of that, like, you know, groundwork on this. Oh, yes. It took we much time and research. effort to this Google. Is fantastic. <laughs> no, I love it. <laughs> So um, let's talk a little bit about the genre and the format okay. for this book before we get into it. Um, so what did you think about this? Like, how would you even classify this as a genre? I, I don't know. This was going to be my question for you as right. a writer. I'm like, <laughs> is it a comedic fantasy? Is apocalypse comedy a genre? <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. I had to read a lot of Christian fiction in high school, which was just mostly terrible, terrible writing. And... My religious upbringing was isolating and disturbing, but I'm still fascinated by stories of angels and demons and mm -hmm. apocalyptic battles. Like, see our podcast, Still Dead, about Angel the Series. Um, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> 
But Good Omens is the only, I guess, Bible-adjacent book Mm -hmm. that really both intrigues me and makes me crack up laughing. Yeah. And I wonder about the, the format, too. Like, okay, so we have this comedy about the end of the world which i don't mm-hmm. know exactly how you would sell that to an editor <laughs> well if you're if you're neil gaiman and terry pratchett that's how you sell it. oh yeah okay <laughs> just, good point you're just i'm neil gaiman i'm terry pratchett <laughs> give us the money trust yeah. us it'll be fun exactly <laughs> <laughs> but the book doesn't have regular chapter breaks because of course mm-hmm. it doesn't right. and i do like the the big sections because it shows mm-hmm. that there's only a few days until doomsday but i really wish they had used a chapter and verse format like the bible oh because like i wanted book of crowley chapter one verse 14 like oh no i love it (laughs) would have been so great Mm -hmm. um and i love and i know we'll probably have different feelings about this but i love little hidden notes like throughout a book i love the footnotes um and i love the copyright page begins with a caveat you know (laughs) bringing about armageddon can be dangerous do not attempt this in your own home i'm like oh my god i love it (laughs) but i think i have bought this book at least five times Uh uh-huh yeah me too yeah and Mm -hmm. i I always end up giving a copy away and buying another one Mm -hmm. and i have it on audio and i love the audio book but the version I have now is the 2007 paperback edition. Yeah. So it's a white background with Crowley, and he's in, like, a suit and tie and sunglasses and a tail and wings. Aww. And he's, like, laying there with a glass of red wine, and it's so great. Oh, my God. I'm actually reading the Kindle edition, and I oh. have it in Kindle. I have it in audiobook, and I had it in paperback, but I'm not sure what happened. I think I lost it somewhere. Okay. Um, so I may need to get another another physical copy because, well, the thing is, like, I hate the footnotes. Oh. Footnotes make me crazy. Um, and part of that is because when you're reading it on a kindle like the they have like a little um you know a little asterisk for the footnote and then you got to click on that and then it has this little pop-up oh it's distracting oh no like and the thing is like on the in the physical format you know you're reading and everything there's a footnote you glance at the bottom you glance back up but it's it's a very distracting kind of thing but the other thing is too that like the footnotes are amusing little things like these are it feels like jokes Mm -hmm. it makes sense to me that these guys were trying to amuse each other because it feels like jokes they're just throwing at each other that really don't have anything to do with the narrative and you know me i'm about like get the story on the road (laughs) and that's one of the things between that and the omniscient pov Mm -hmm. which is always kind of difficult for me i really want to be deep in the pov of whatever one and i mean granted at least for the most part if you're in a section you know like a scene will be told mostly they'll stick with one pov although not really because really. we do like in the in the scene with haster and leaguer you know crowley goes in we're in crowley's pov for part of it we're in leaguer's head for part of it we're in haster's head. so yeah i guess they did and that's i don't like the head hopping mm-hmm. i mean and it technically in you know in a, a omniscient pov you you can't head hop because the head that you're in is the omniscient narrator you know so um but it just like it always throws me out. It always gets so I always I love 
this book. It's really, really fun. And I appreciate the sense of humor. But I always feel whenever I'm reading it a little bit shaky. Like, I don't know, like, whose head am I in? Whose perspective am I in? Mm -hmm. And that's one of my problems with Terry Pratchett in general. I really love Terry Pratchett, but omniscient POV puts me on edge. See, I think that's so interesting. Um, And it brings up a question I have that I'm just going to skip around in our notes and throw you off and make you wonder... Who's, right. whose head are you hopping in in the notes? We're going to shake it up. Um, <laughs> but I love omniscient POV. I mm-hmm. love books with multiple, you know, where it rotates, like even if each chapter. Is oh, a I don't mind going from scene to scene. Yeah. Like, I don't mind. Like that's, that's deep third. That's okay. oh, maybe I should explain. Yes. What let's all do these that. are. I'm talking yes, about this. Like everybody that. knows. And if you're not a writer, you probably don't know or care. All right. So there's different kinds of POV. That's point of view. That's perspective. That's how that's written. Like first person is very simple and straightforward. It's I did this. I did that. Blah, blah, blah. You know whose head you're in because they're speaking directly to you in first person. So that's really easy. Right. Then you've got like third, third person POV, which is he did this. He did that. But we're like four any particular scene that you're in it's you're in that person's POV for the whole scene Mm -hmm. so you can't know as a reader anything that they don't know or perceive because you're in their experience right so omniscient POV is told from an all-knowing narrator that is neither part of the story or, you know, it's just observing everything. And so you'll have an internal, like in one paragraph, you'll have an internal thought from one character and then boom, you'll switch over and you'll be in an internal thought for another character. That drives me insane because I don't feel anchored in any one perspective. And I think that after a while in Omniscient POV, you can get used to it. Mm -hmm. So like, so like, Third person POV, I think, is the kind of happy middle ground because you can do an entire scene in one person's perspective, but then you can move to another character for another scene, you know, but when you're in one scene, you're in you're in one person's head. So you can't like hop from, you know, like if you have a scene that's being told from one person's point of view, they can't then read the mind of the person unless the character's like has a power that they can read minds in that case they could as short of that um, they can't read the mind of the other character that's in the scene with them so first person and third person keep you very deeply anchored in your characters third omniscient you know um, which is this the way that that good omens is written is we're just hopping all over the place we're seeing things we're pulling things from everywhere and it's a completely legitimate POV. It's just I personally don't respond well to it because I want to live in the experience of the characters. I want to be in that with that character. I like riding on the back of a character through a story. And I don't mind hopping off from scene to scene. But within a scene, from moment to moment, from paragraph to paragraph, it throws me off and it puts me on edge. Yeah, that makes sense. And I wonder... Like one of the questions that I I have and will continue to have as we talk about this book is what kind of God are we playing with here in oh, this dear story? God. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're yeah. going to talk yeah. about it. It's so great. <laughs> and I wonder if this omniscient choice is part just the fun personality of these two writers. But to mm-hmm. me, it fits this book because it is both chaotic and all knowing. And it kind of feels like that's the God that's in this story. I don't know that you could write this book in anything other than omniscient POV. Yeah. 
I think it's just something, I think it's absolutely the right choice. I mean, let me just be clear here. I think it's absolutely the right choice. I think it fits the aesthetic of the book. I think that it's great and it's funny. It just throws me off. Mm -hmm. It puts me on edge because I'm never secure with who I'm with. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so it is a little bit weird for me to go like all like to, to broaden from this very tight perspective that I usually like to live in, in my fiction to this very broad, all knowing kind of thing, but I like it. Yeah. I think it's really good. You know, I think it's the right choice. I mean, it's absolutely the right choice because an omniscient, all knowing POV is what you need in order to understand all of the things that are going on in this story, because we have have all these complex, you know, forces of, of ultimate good and ultimate evil, you know, working on each other within this space. So, I mean, I think that we're mostly, for most of the book, we're in Crowley's POV. And I think Crowley is, is definitely like guiding us through that. But we hop all over the place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that leads me to my next question for you. Mm -hmm. Who the hell is the protagonist and the antagonist <laughs> of this book? <laughs> because like... I was Josh Under and I. I've got Josh reading this. Yeah. And he and I were talking about this too. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So I'm trying to apply like my little bitty fledgling narrative understanding because I'm like mm -hmm. following your teachings to this. And I'm like, yeah. I'm going to figure out the protagonist, the antagonist, and the central conflict. Right. And then it's mm -hmm. this book. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to ask Lonnie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, um, protagonist, antagonist, and central conflict, those are for the main story of any particular story, right? You know, so there's like a main story that the structure is based on, and it's based on that central narrative conflict. There can be more than one narrative conflict within a story. Like you can have subplots that have other, like a, a, you have a protagonist for the main story, then you have like a protagonist for a subplot or something like that like that kind of thing can happen in this book i would say that crowley is our main protagonist and the reason for that is this we have three things that are required to create a protagonist we have to be in their pov which we mostly are mm -hmm. in this um, we have to see things from their perspective and i think we most closely follow crowley's perspective in this um and then they have to have a motive force so they are the ones that are providing the motive force they have a goal and they're chasing after it and that's what's moving the story forward and escalating the conflict um and and also that they have the most at stake. And I would say that Crowley being the one, the one demon who a knows what's going on, right? Everybody else in the world is just going about their business. They don't really know the apocalypse is going to happen. He knows this is going to happen and he doesn't want it to happen. So he's the one who is inciting Aziraphale. Without Crowley, Aziraphale would not be involving himself in this. Okay. So he'd just be waiting for the ineffable, ineffable <laughs> thing to be an F, right? You know, so uh, so Crowley is the one who's really like pushing the action of this narrative, the conflict of this narrative, and the antagonist is actually Satan because Satan is the one. This is his plan. Now it's his minions who are put like you know Hoster and Lear and all these like demons and all that kind of stuff, um, and it's his minions that are doing it. But he's the one who's commanding it to happen. He is the one who is sending messages to Crowley and saying you have to do this. And he's also the one, and we're going to be talking about this a little bit who is controlling Crowley, right? Because demons don't have free will, which I think is an argument that is clearly refuted mm -hmm. in the pages of this. But it's an interesting idea that Crowley cannot disobey. Yeah. He has to. So he has to obey what the what Satan tells him to do, but he can also subvert what Satan is trying to do 
you know, because he hasn't been commanded really not to, you know, yeah. like, so, um, so it's kind of, it's really like an interesting philosophical space to be the kinds of questions that Good Omens raises, you know, about the essence of good and evil and, 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 you know, who has free will and how does that work and all that. It's, it's kind of interesting stuff. Yeah. But that's basically how it lays out. Okay. That makes total sense. And mm-hmm. that will bring us to the beginning because we start with, questions of the nature of good and evil right which is great Mm -hmm. so this very short first few pages uh in the beginning chapter Mm -hmm. i love that we're opening with the serpent (laughs) it's like yes i think it was a bit of an overreaction you know know. like first (laughs) offense and all is so great i know i know it's so wonderful and i also love that you know where where crowley's lay and i guess this is when he fell Right? I mean, he was an angel before that? Uh, I think this is after he fell. So he is now, he's now a demon. So he's a demon. He's now and a he's demon. he's a snake. But he's the snake who was sent to tempt Eve with the apple. So like, okay. but he says, I can't see what's so bad about knowing the difference between good and evil anyway. Right. So then he's questioning himself, like, did I actually do something that's not bad? And like, right. what does that make mm-hmm. me? I'm a demon. <laughs> and yeah. I, I love, I love it so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So much. No, it is. It's really good. And I mean, that's, you know, what is so bad about knowing the difference? And what is bad about knowledge? Mm-hmm. How How is knowledge an evil? Except that for the the positions of power which in this arrangement are you know god and the devil god and satan you know for them for for entities trying to have power and control over people knowledge is bad because if people know things knowledge is power mm-hmm. right so if people know things they have the power to act on that knowledge and and so good and evil are actually both being evil because they're trying to prevent people from having knowledge and understanding and power of their own. So right away, you know, if you actually look at it, 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 it raises that question of, well, what is good? Mm-hmm. You know, is it, is it is it good to keep humans in a walled garden, which is essentially a prison yeah it's a pretty prison they can't even eat the apples i mean the tree know? is right there like it's right there like, could you imagine locking me up in a garden with like this big glowy bookshelf and be like uh-huh don't touch it like don't uh, touch oh, it exactly <laughs> exactly and i mean the thing is i think crowley calls that out yeah it's like you know you put a big thing that says don't touch it you know of course, what do you think is going to happen? Right, right, right. So it's a setup. Yeah. From the beginning, it's a setup. And like, you know, so you look at in this book, from the very beginning, God and Satan seem like they're working together, just fucking with us. And they're both assholes. Yeah. Or like it's some big social experiment to see, yeah. <laughs> like, let's give them free will, but punish them for using it and see what yes. happens. Yes. Exactly. You know, and then, and I love how it's influencing Crowley and Aziraphale too, because mm-hmm. now Crowley's questioning, oh my, I might have actually done something good because, hey, knowledge is right. good. Mm-hmm. And then Aziraphale gave his flaming sword to Adam and Eve because he knows they're going to need it. You know, they've been kicked right. out of the garden and 
it's about to rain. And they're out in the world yeah. on their own, right? And so mm-hmm. then Azuraphale is worried that he did the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And so we, we're starting off with this angel and this demon questioning the nature of good and evil. And they're also questioning each of their own capacity for each in five pages. <laughs> I know. Well, and also it's coming back to intent versus impact, Mm -hmm. right? You know, because uh, Crowley's intent, he sent in to tempt Eve, right? With this knowledge, with this apple. So he's sent in to fuck shit up. Like that's the purpose. That's his intent is to create chaos and fuck shit up. Whereas, you know, Aziraphale's intent with giving the flaming sword to Adam and Eve was to protect them. Mm -hmm. So they would have something to protect themselves. And in the end, the effect, you know, the impact of Crowley is, is it good to have knowledge and to have power and to be self, you know, directed? That's a question. I mean, I think, yeah, I think in general, mm-hmm. you know, we, we like that idea of having free will and, and knowledge and the ability to to self-direct. And, you know, for Aziraphale, why is having the flaming sort of bad thing? Is they're going to create all sorts of danger for them? Do they end up because they end up killing animals or what? like what? You know, what is it about the flaming sword that's going to be an ultimate evil, even though his intent was good? Well, I think it's another form of power. Right. It was an angelic sword and he put it. It's an angelic sword. It's a lot of power for a human person. Yeah. To wield. So Mm -hmm. it it really is interesting. And of course, you know, it's going to rain for the first time. It's a doozy. Huge storm. Mm -hmm. Really wish I could have seen it. So (laughs) the world has changed and everybody's scared Mm -hmm. and unsure of what happens now. And I really love, you know, this beautiful prose that we get in this section Mm -hmm. and then it ends with it was going to be a dark and stormy night and it makes me laugh every single time and it's really funny (laughs) because my other favorite quasi-religious spiritual book that I grew (laughs) up with is A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lingle and the first line of that book is it was a dark and stormy night which has become this cliche for shitty writing right You know, it was a dark and stormy night. And so it's really interesting because we actually open this this very short but incredibly packed (laughs) in the beginning segment with it was a nice day. Yeah. So we open with it was a nice day and then it was going to be a dark and stormy night. And then later when we get to 11 years ago, we open with it wasn't a dark and stormy night, you know, and that's weather for you. (laughs) Everything is unreadable. Like you can, all of this stuff you look at and you're like, well, is it this? Is it that? These are like, it's, it's, you're bombarded with a bunch of unanswerable questions. Mm -hmm. And when it comes right down to, you know, uh, the free will, right? Right. That uh, Aziraphale doesn't have free will. So, but he is uh, angel. So if he does something, it has to buy the very transitive nature of angel, I guess, you know, be a good thing. You know, and same thing for Crowley. Like they don't have choices. They don't have free will, except they do kind of have free will. Because if if what Crowley did was, although he was ordered to go in there. So Crowley just followed orders, Mm -hmm. you know, but Aziraphale actually made a choice. Aziraphale was the one who decided to give them the flaming sword. So what is that if not free will? And they're both making the choice to be hanging out with each other. Exactly. Which is really, really interesting. Yeah, Yeah, it's fascinating. There's just so much in there. And it's a billion unanswerable questions. It's why I love it so much. What is the nature of good and evil? (laughs) It is really, and not only that, 
in such a short scene, mm-hmm. a million unanswerable questions, really funny, yeah. really sweet. You know, you get a sense of Aziraphale and Crowley and their relationship to each other. It's really wonderful. And then it opens with it was a nice day and then it was going to be a dark and stormy night. All of these things. I mean, I just I love all of it. I do too. It's so wonderful. It's so great. It's so great. Mm-hmm. And so and then we move over to Dramatist Persona and we meet the characters. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I love that we get the full subtitle here. So <laughs> the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which which was actually Terry Pratchett's preferred title for the book. And so oh, and yeah. Neil Gaiman suggested Good Omens. And so then they put them together to have mm-hmm. the title and the subtitle, which I love. But the description we get of Crowley as an yes. angel who did not so much fall as saunter vaguely downward has to be my favorite character description of all time. I know. I love it. I love it's it. It's so great. And then we get Madam Tracy. Mm-hmm. Painted Jezebel. Mornings only <laughs> Thursday by arrangement <laughs> and medium. I love her so much. <laughs> it's so great. Yeah. And I wonder why Mr. Young, you know, Adam's father is listed, but Mrs. Uh-huh. Young, his mother, is not. Uh, patriarch? Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. <laughs> <laughs> she only gave birth I mean, to the child. Right, gave birth to him, raised right. him. Like, what's the big deal? Mm-hmm. I was like, really? Yeah. Really? Well, we're not. We don't talk to the women. No. The women are just there pumping out babies. But in that entire scene, we're focused on the men. And the nuns. <laughs> and the nuns. <laughs> but right. not the actual moms. No, because they're women who have had sex. Oh, yeah. And so once you've had sex, that's it. Just toss them an apple and put them in the corner. It's going to be fine. That's right. <laughs> but what I would have loved to have seen in this list is Crowley's Bentley. Because uh, that yeah. car is basically a character in this book. <laughs> it really is. It really is. <laughs> okay. And then we go into the next chapter, 11 years mm-hmm. ago, which I think of as like the mission impossible mission that Crowley did not want to accept. Like right. your mission, if you choose to accept it and Crowley's like hard pass. Sure. Like, no, thanks. Hard pass. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> we don't get like, we don't actually get God and Satan as characters in this. We no, but they are forces. Right. They're forces. We get their voices. Yeah. But mm-hmm. we get this description of God and I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to read too much from the book, but Trying to summarize this, this would just be a crime though. against good writing. Oh, it's okay. I think quoting from the book is Okay, fine. so I'm going to read it. So this is on page 11 in my version. Mm-hmm. It says, God does not play dice with the universe. He plays an ineffable game of his own devising, which might be compared from the perspective of any other players to being involved in an obscure and complex version of poker in a pitch dark room with blank cards for infinite stakes with a dealer who won't tell you the rules and who smiles all the time. <laughs> smiles all the time that is such a lovely bit of detail it's so great (laughs) because it it basically says god is a son of a bitch right yeah (laughs) i mean he's kind of a fucker right yeah he's like i'm gonna set this in motion and kick back and watch what happens 
Yeah, I mean, what's funny here is that, and you know, we are on hiatus from uh, the regular show that we do called Still Dead, which is about Angel, the television series, the um, the spinoff from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And we have kind of a similar situation between the powers that be and the senior partners in Angel, mm-hmm. right? Where we have these two forces of, you know, ostensibly good and ostensibly evil, but telling the difference between them is actually not easy. Yeah. Because you don't, when it comes right down to it, they're not that different. You know, they're all powerful. And the thing is, is that if God is all powerful, then why is anybody suffering? Why is any of this shit happening? You know, like, so, so they have these powers that are like at war with each other, one for good, one for evil. And in the end, like if you, if you have the power to do something and you don't do it, if you have the power to, to fix things and you don't. You know, then that makes you kind of an asshole. And is that why God needs Satan? Because we can't believe in an all-powerful force for good unless there is an equally powerful force for evil, you know, on the other side, mucking everything up. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so. And I love that the powers that be in Angel are supposed Mm -hmm. to be the good guys. Or we'll just call them team labeled good. (laughs) Exactly. Labeled labeled good, good, but not necessarily matching the label. But in this book, the powers that be are the forces of darkness. (laughs) I was like, I love that so much. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's really interesting because, you know, and and I love that with a dealer who won't tell you the rules and who smiles (laughs) all the time. Yeah. That is creepy. I mean, what a creepy description, right? you know. And then, you know, when you look at Crowley and Aziraphale as these, you know, high level representatives, you know, of of these these entities, you know, and Aziraphale is so like it's ineffable. He's just like it's you know, and he's kind of passive because mm-hmm. he's like I'm on the side of good, so I'm just gonna do what I'm supposed to do, whatever. And then, but Crowley's the one who you know who gave the knowledge mm-hmm. to Eve, right? Um, and who is actually thinking critically about this whole thing, this whole deal, <laughs> you know? Is there a freedom that comes with? not being the good guy the good guys have boundaries and rules and the bad guys can just do whatever the hell they want yeah so there's like a freedom to to do and to to act and to you know i don't know like it's 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 god such an interesting question and when he keeps talking about like you know who's in heaven and who's in hell like none of the interesting (laughs) people are in heaven (laughs) heaven is boring do you know how many musicians your side has three so great but what i love about this is we see crowley like when we first meet him he is a serpent right he is crawly yeah. mm-hmm. the snake yes and then he's he <laughs> crawly, crawly the, the snake. snake he gives the apple to eve and then immediately starts to question what did that i mean? think it's a bit of an overreaction why right. why did mm-hmm. this happen what does it say about yeah. me you know i don't think i feel like right. a crawly anymore like what is the nature yeah. of good and evil and so i love the fact that you cannot interact with knowledge without catching it yeah like yes. even though he was just yes. supposed to deliver that apple it got him too oh god that's so interesting i hadn't even thought about that that he that maybe he didn't question things until he touched the apple. Yeah. <gasps> I love because we that. see him continuing to ask questions. He thinks differently. 
You know, he's yeah. a he's a strategic thinker. He's a critical thinker. He asks really great questions. He poses things so that other people mm-hmm. can see his view. You know, the way yeah. that he's able to influence a zero fail. But I'm like, yeah, he unfiltered, great, powerful source of knowledge. You can't mm-hmm. interact with that and not walk away changed. Oh, my God. I love that. I hadn't even thought about that. But yeah, yeah it makes me very happy. And then when we get to this the line again about it wasn't a dark and stormy night, right. they're like, it should have been. But that's the weather for you. But just because it's a mild night doesn't mean that dark forces aren't abroad. They always are. That's the whole point. Uh, And that's Mm -hmm. coming from page 12. And I was like, okay, the whole point of what? Of evil? Like for evil to be in action all the time? Is that the whole point? Or Well, I mean, maybe because you have these two opposing forces, but like without darkness do you have light like that you need an opposite in order to define the thing right so in order to have good you've got to have evil there as an opposing force and if one of them takes a nap (laughs) then the other one ceases to exist I don't know I mean I think it's it's complicated and and really interesting and again like unanswerable questions. I know, it's so great. Oh, but I love your point yeah. about you can't really see something without comparing it to its opposite. Mm-hmm. Because the the way that we learn more about Crowley here is so great because it's in contrast to Hafster and Liger, right? Yeah. And I love this line. Mm-hmm. If Bruce Springsteen had ever recorded Born to Lurk, these two would have been on the album cover. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great way to introduce these two demons. But by comparing them to Crowley, it lets us get to know Crowley without exposition, which Mm -hmm. I also thought was brilliant. Yes, absolutely. And they're talking about all of their demonic achievements. And, you know, Haster and Liger are still old school. Like you take one soul, you influence, you influence, you influence, you take it down. And Crowley's like, corrupt him. Crowley's like, how can I turn a whole lot of people super fast and effective? Like, I think in the Buffy world, like Crowley and Mr. Uh Trick would have been a team. Oh, I think so, too. (laughs) Absolutely. And I love that the M25 motorway as like a fuel Mm -hmm. for evil is is invention. Like the things that he does. He's like, you you irritate people, you get them in a bad moment, and then the worst in them comes out, and then they're shitty to other people, and then that goes on, and it's just like, you know, and then they piss off two friends, and then they (laughs) piss off two friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. And like, he's working the system, you know. That is... By the way, that is a fucking deep pull old call to advertising from like the 70s. <laughs> that was like a shampoo commercial advertising from the 70s that I still reference to this day and I don't have any shame about it. But he does this and like he works the system for like maximizing evil while minimizing effort. Like you got to hand it yeah. to him. You know, I mean, like this whole like I, I, you know, convinced a man to take a bribe and he'll be ours in a year. You know, <laughs> like Crowley's just having more fun oh, with yeah. it. He's coming. He's being creative. And I love how like the power of the mundane, like traffic and the weather and the influence of familiarity, you know, like yes. what century mm-hmm. you're used to or growing up Satanist. Um, There's such interesting yeah. themes in this book. 
And I mm-hmm. love some of the humor that we're able to get through Crowley. But one of my all-time favorite things is the running queen joke. Oh, right. All tapes <laughs> left in a car for more than a fortnight metamorphose into the best of queen albums. And right. I'm like, I wonder if young people get this joke. Like, right. do playlists left unattended in Spotify for two weeks also turn into the best of queen? Well, I actually just checked my Spotify account. Yes. <laughs> That's so fantastic. It's so fantastic. And I, I just yeah. love every time Crowley wants a certain kind of music and he puts it in and he gets Freddie Mercury. It's so great. I and- know. <laughs> I mean, that just seems evil. Right? It's so great. <laughs> Except I love Queens. So I love it all the way through. Well, yeah. No, but I mean, I think it's just, it's funny because like every car that you ever go into, like in a certain period of time, mm-hmm. like the best of Queen was the, ta- and, it, and I love the technology in this uh, too. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's so clearly 1990s, yeah. you know, um, they mentioned the car phone and I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> And I love that Crowley's running late because he's enjoying the 20th century immensely. Like, yes, <laughs> I know. I love that. So fantastic. <laughs> I love this thing where he says, one of the nice things about time, Crowley always said, was that it was steadily taking him further away from the 14th century, the most bloody, boring hundred years on God's excuse his French earth. <laughs> I love how much as a demon Crowley enjoys the mm-hmm. world that he just gets a kick out of it. And it reminds me again, okay, like clearly we're going to be making Buffy references. We can't help it. But he reminds me of Spike from Buffy. You yeah. know, I like the world. It's got people mm-hmm. in it. Happy meals with legs, you know. Um, and Crowley has that very, like he has a very Spike kind of energy to, oh, him, yeah. to his evil. He does. Mm-hmm. And I love the running jokes with the traffic cops. And his car yeah. getting impounded and like being pulled over and tickets and stuff. Mm-hmm. But he turns the police cars you when know, they're chasing him and he, he turns their engine into something that we don't know what. <laughs> it's like they're going to be so surprised when they open the hood. And I'm like, okay, I was it snakes? Because right. like, what did he turn their engine into? I want to know. <laughs> I don't know. A portal to the dark oh. world? I have no idea. I have no idea. I imagine he just made it really annoying mm. because that's Crowley's MO, mm-hmm. you know, just did something and pissed him <laughs> off. <laughs> Maybe so. They open it up and it's like tax forms, you know, <laughs> or like that giant ball of wire that your Christmas lights get twisted into. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> All of your Apple um, ear pod wires in this Gordian knot from hell. <laughs> And you have to unravel them all. Yeah, that's pretty horrible. Yeah, and I love the contrast, too, because most demons, it says, have a very limited grasp of technology. But Crowley is basically the Bill Gates of hell. (laughs) It's like he wants them all on, like, the internet and, like, car phones. Yeah. But then his technology gets used against him and his car. And he's like, not like that. That's not what I meant. Like, don't use it on me. (laughs) Right. Well, I like that, that they can't even, like, he wanted them all to be on mobile phones, you know, and instead they're like, I'm just going to come through your radio. (laughs) And, like, put information directly into your head. (laughs) All right. Instead of saying it out loud. Oh, my God. I don't know why the demons recounting the deeds of the day delights me so much, but it does. Like, is someone taking minutes 
Do they have a, a demonic yeah. version of Robert's Rules of Order? Like, it's <laughs> it's so... Great. I think this is just like this competitive thing that men do, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, for regular men, it's some metaphor for their penis size. And for these guys, it's this. How evil were you today? <laughs> Please raise your deeds on a scale from one through five. And, and I love, like, in comparison to these, you know, I tempted this soul and he will be ours. And so Crowley's mm-hmm. like, I tied up every portable phone system in central London for 45 right. minutes. <laughs> I love that. I love that, that he is just, he's just fucking with people. Yeah. But he has a plan. Oh, yeah. Like, he knows he knows that it's going to, uh, one person gets mad, and then they're shitty to somebody else, and then everybody's shitty, and then before you know it, all of them Yeah, go. and I love, he's like, the pass-along effect is incalculable. I'm like, uh, right. I think given the proper statistical software, we could calculate a rough <laughs> estimate, but I really... Don't ever say incalculable <laughs> to a researcher. <laughs> but I like the way he thinks. You know, and then, of mm-hmm. course, I'm like, oh, damn it. Here we go again. I'm like, there's this guy and he's funny and he's snarky and he's got great taste in music. And hello, he's evil. But mama, I love him. <laughs> but mama, I love him. I know. It's a good thing that all these guys that we're falling madly in love with who are just terrible are all fictional because this could just be lots <laughs> Absolutely. He's evil, but I love me some evil. <laughs> I know. Like, there's something wrong I with know. us. I know. I'm like, there's angels. Like, clearly there's a side. We have an angel in a bookstore. And I'm like, oh, right. Look, demon in a Bentley. I'll be right back. No. Like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> no, it, it really is. And I'm a little bit alarmed by it. I have I to know. Say. But I love it so much. I love it so much. I think I think it speaks ill for both of us in our futures. We're going to need to keep a good eye on each other. <laughs> for one of us hops in that Bentley and just rides away to a very, very bad future. <laughs> well, well, maybe we'll look for snakeskin shoes. And I'll be like, okay. no, no, right. no, no, no. <laughs> I have to run all my men past you. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Yep. But, and I did like the, I liked how, like, we're setting Crowley apart is so different from these other demons. Mm -hmm. But we see kind of how delighted those demons are to be telling him, hey, take this basket, go start the apocalypse. Good luck. (laughs) Take this basket with (laughs) a baby in it. Have fun with that. Is there anything more horrifying than a basket with a baby? No, oh my God. Mm Because apparently they haven't caught on to like car seats or, you know, anything. Take this basket and put this demon in it. With this mutant (laughs) baby in it. And Crowley's like, look, kid, I want to hear my music while we're driving. Don't spit up on the car. (laughs) You know, he's not into this at all. I don't care whose kid you are. But like we know and they know Crowley does not want this assignment, you know, and I and I right. like how obviously delighted they are to be putting him in this position. Right. You know, and, and I like Crowley's kind of reflection on why he doesn't want this. It's not because he's good or, you know, like not mm-hmm. capital G good. But on page 20, it says Crowley remembered what heaven was like, and it had quite a few things in common with hell. 
You couldn't get a decent mm-hmm. drink in either of them for a start. <laughs> and the boredom you got in heaven was almost as bad as the excitement you got in hell. <laughs> <laughs> And that is the essential problem. Mm -hmm. That is the essential problem of heaven and hell. You look at heaven and it's not that appealing. Right. You know, I mean, for a day or two, sure, that's great. But it's boring and the people in it are boring. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you need a little bit of like a little badness, you know, I guess. But to a certain degree, like not not totally bad, not evil, evil, bad, but like, you know, middling. Just a little wicked. (laughs) <laughs> just a little just wicked a little wicked like come on <laughs> the mama love of love. <laughs> yeah but and i like that we're staying in crowley's pov because some of these like mm-hmm. wait who are we looking at right now moments haven't started yet mm-hmm. that we're following him to the this hospital and we yeah. meet mr young and oh my god like and and he's such a great example like not evil but not likable mm-hmm. because hello support beam for the patriarchy is it 1990 or is it 1950 what the fuck is going on this no because this clearly like this hospital these nuns this whole place is clearly back in time you know like 50 years at least oh yeah it's just he's got a cigar He's like, I don't want to be in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, all of this. He doesn't approve of newspapers with lifestyle and options sections. I mean, for (laughs) well, because it makes the women. Oh, yeah, we can't have that. Can't Mm -hmm. have that. Right. Can't have that. I mean, we saw what happened with Eve. Like, come on, people. It's kind of. I know. Right. (laughs) Oh, my God. Talk about a misogynistic goddamn origin story. I swear to God. Don't let the women don't, think. Don't let them think yeah. or eat fruit. Because then they might realize they don't fucking need <laughs> you for shit. Oh, there are so many possible segues to that. But I will stick to the book. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have that discussion afterward. <laughs> With a cigar. Right. And I love Mr. Young asking Crowley if he would care to share a joyous cigar experience. <laughs> Right. Sharing joyous experience language was so funny. And yeah. the baby swap play by play was funny, but like I couldn't help it. There was still a part of me that was like, okay, but really, what about these babies? Like, are, like, right. are they okay? I know. Like, it's, it's like, what's going on? Is this a nature versus nurture thing? What about the baby that mm-hmm. we don't see? No, the baby that we don't see. You know, which is the baby that was born to, like, actually born to the the American um, yeah. diplomat. Yep, the right? That baby just gets disappeared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's disturbing. It's a little disturbing. They're like, you can imagine what happened to him. We like your version better anyway. And I'm like, okay, stop. That shit is dark. That was yeah. not okay. I'm like flipping uh-huh. ahead, checking. I'm like, okay, no. Right. So everybody, he's fine. He's fine. Yes. Like, that was not okay. And they come back later and make a joke out of it. But I'm like, nope. No, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Nope. Nope. We not can okay. end the world. Not we can okay. blow it up. We can fall in love with demons. But we're not going to threaten infants. Mm-hmm. That's not <laughs> right. cool. So we have, I mean, but the thing that confuses me about all this baby nonsense, right, is that so the the American diplomat knows that he's supposed to be raising the Antichrist, correct? I don't know. He named the kid Warlock, and the nurse, the nun, was talking to him as though he yeah. knew. 
because she was talking to Mr. Young, who she thought was the one who was supposed to take the baby. That's true. The evil baby. And she was talking to him as if he knew. That's true. And I, I didn't know if they just knew they were having like a Satanist baby. And this was part of the deal. Right. But it, did they actually know it was going to be the Antichrist? I don't know. Yeah. I found this whole thing to be so confusing. I tried to follow it. And in the end, I was just like, all right, fine. The baby moves around. <laughs> We have we have the actual Antichrist living with the Youngs, and we have the not Antichrist, but they think it's the Antichrist living with these other yep. people. And uh, there you go. You know, yeah, it's a little confusing. But yeah. and it cracked me up that most of the nuns were Satanist, and the the whole chattering order thing was so funny. Yes, but I really liked this kind of humanist perspective that we get on mm-hmm. page twenty six. They're like, most of the members of the convent were old-fashioned Satanists, like their parents and grandparents before them. They'd been brought up to it and weren't, once you got right down to it, particularly evil. Human beings mostly aren't. And mm-hmm. I just thought that this was fascinating, because they're like, most major things that happen aren't really from people being fundamentally good or fundamentally evil, but by people being fundamentally people. Right. Yeah. But then they follow that up with they just get carried away by new ideas like dressing up in jackboots and shooting people or dressing up in white sheets and lynching people or dressing up in tie dye jeans and playing guitars at people. Okay. Which out of the three of them, the last one is the least evil. But all of that shit is evil. I mean, you know, that's that's like ultimate, ultimate evil. And so this this idea that seems to be presented that these are all like value neutral things feels a little weird mm-hmm. to me because if if that's not evil, what is evil exactly? How would you define evil if shooting people, lynching people and playing guitars at people <laughs> is not evil? And it was interesting too that these examples that they give are really group mm-hmm mentalities and not yeah. so much individual acts of good and evil well except for the tie-dye jeans and playing well, guitars. Yeah. that's usually that's usually an individual <laughs> douchebag is who that is i know because i was married to that douchebag for a while <laughs> but i mean it is it is evil though like so this is where you know i, I got my kelly Ooh. jones on and i was like wait define define your fucking mm-hmm. terms like if if shooting people lynching people and these this is like group activities of ultimate hatred i mean we're referencing the holocaust and genocide you know and lynching in america i mean that's that's true 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 evil how are how are these people not evil by your you know i was with everything fundamentally good or bad but by people being fundamentally Mm -hmm. people you know that's fine for like the that's fine for the guitar playing but for the rest of it that I, I read that and it just it clanged so hard for me because it felt like it was this it was this ultimate, you know, pass on judgment on things that are truly evil. I read it two ways. So one was the idea of getting carried away by new ideas where I thought they were being snarky. Yeah. No, I think they were being snarky, but like that's over the line. Isn't it? If you're talking about genocide, I think that's over the line for snark, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, it's a little over the line. But it also brought back the question of knowledge and critical thinking to me. Because if you're raised satanic, if you're raised racist, if Uh you're brought, like, the, the familiarity 
that you grow up in, the mentality that you grow up in, if mm-hmm. you don't question it. Yeah. If you are just simply accepting this is who we hate, and so this is how we behave. I think that they're almost snarking at that. Mm-hmm. That, like, if all the trouble with humanity was caused by this thirst for knowledge, and then we stop using it, yeah, and we just go along with whatever's familiar, mm-hmm. then you end up doing great, great harm. Right. So it's so you're talking that, like it's a reference of the lack of critical thinking. I think so. That creates evil. Yes. And Crowley is the one who introduced critical thinking. Exactly. To, wow, now we're going right? to a whole level. I'm not sure that they've earned that in the text. I think that's a very generous reading. I think you've <laughs> given them a very generous reading of that. I don't think that they've earned that in the text, but I think it's a really, it's a really, really interesting perspective. I would have loved to have seen that in there. But mm-hmm. this idea that, it, that, you know, did I do a good thing yeah. by giving them critical thought? Yeah. Yeah, it fascinates me. Yeah. Like it just fascinates me. Mm-hmm. And some of the who's on first with Sister Mary and Mr. Oh, Young yeah. and the two nuns and the Winky, I can't even. Like, it's just a little over the top. Yeah. Um, but then I love all the conversation about naming, mm-hmm. right, for both babies. Yeah. Um, and I love all the names in this mm-hmm. book. And then Except we switch. Warlock. Like, I don't yeah, care for Warlock. Warlock for a baby. <laughs> Poor Warlock. That's like, stupid. That's just so stupid. So yeah. obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we shift from like this. We've, we've been in a pretty straight course, right? With right. Crowley mm-hmm. and now this baby and now the hospital. And then we just shift over to Anantema device. I this know. This little girl like reading this book of prophecies. Yes. Um, but I love her name so much. I love it. Anathema device has such a beautiful sound to it. Yeah. It's you know? such a great name. Mm-hmm. And I love that, you know, it says very few people at the age of eight and a half know that nice also means scrupulously exact. But Anathema was one of them. Yes. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> and, and that like she she's kind of spooky, you know, she's, uh-huh prophetic and she's super smart and like the only things her teachers will criticize her for is that her spelling is 300 years too late i know (laughs) oh my god i love that i love that but if you think about the meaning like what anathema means Mm -hmm. you know i mean i'm reading from you know the dictionary a formal curse by a pope or a council of the church excommunicating a person or denouncing a doctrine you know or something or someone that one vehemently dislikes See, it's a perfect name for your baby. It is a perfect. (laughs) Anathema. I mean, and the thing that I love about it is that it sounds like a girl's name. Mm -hmm. Anathema. I mean, it has that kind of ring to it, you know, and uh, but that it is something that is in essence ultimately rejected. Yeah. You know, it is it is this the focus of anathema is the rejection of something, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and then here we've got it. And then the last name of device. Yeah, it's a great last name. It's such a great name. I know. It's so good. And then I love we get back to Crowley. Mm-hmm. And it says evil in general does not sleep and therefore doesn't see why anyone else should. But Crowley <laughs> liked sleep. It was yeah. one of the pleasures of the world. Mm. And I'm like, and he he likes people. Yeah. You know, and it's described as a major failing for him as a demon. Mm-hmm. But when he's trying to explain to the other demons, like, look, we should stop wasting our time trying to win over souls. Like right. humans have what we lack. They have imagination <laughs> and electricity. <laughs> Except know? that Crowley has imagination. 
Mm-hmm. And again, like I, you've blown my mind with this whole he touched the apple. Yeah, the apple is the is. I was just gonna say the apple is the core of everything. I swear to God. <laughs> I was as I was thinking it. I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna say this." No, <laughs> pun actively avoided. The apple's at the center of everything, is what I mean. And um, <laughs> you know, Crowley is—I mean, because to say they've got what we lack, except that he clearly doesn't lack that. Mm-hmm. He has imagination. He's the only one employing imagination, even after, like Aziraphale isn't. Aziraphale yeah. is just following him. So I love that he got infected by yeah. this knowledge, by this critical thought. And that's what's pushing him and doing ultimate, you know, ultimate good. Like, yeah. oh, God. And it's so, it's so nuts. It's so great. And like the the good and evil is so intertwined. Right. And the things that Crowley thinks he does not have, Mm -hmm. right. He thinks he doesn't have imagination. He thinks he doesn't have free will. Yeah. And he thinks he doesn't have a capacity for good. And yet he demonstrates those traits over and over and over again. Right. Throughout this book. Mm -hmm. So on page 34, it says Crowley got a commendation for the Spanish Inquisition. He had been in Spain then, mainly hanging around the cantinas and the nicer parts, and hadn't even known about it until the accommodation <laughs> arrived. He'd gone to have a look and had come back and got drunk for a week. Right. Because, like, he was actually horrified by what he, he was saw. affected by it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it just, it's, it's just fascinating to me. And then kind of their debate between Crowley and Aziraphale about free will mm-hmm. and Aziraphale trying to explain it. You know, people mm-hmm. can't become truly holy unless they also have the opportunity to be definitively wicked, which by the way, wherever we get to sign up for that, yes, I would like a turn because I don't know that I have been given enough opportunity <laughs> to be definitively wicked, <laughs> to be definitively wicked. Like I would like it. I would like a formal invitation and like, right. yeah, like, I think that would be great. Mm-hmm. But Crowley comes right back at that, arguing that that philosophy only works if everyone starts out on an equal footing. Right. You know, and so this mm-hmm. demon is actually becoming this deep thinking humanist philosopher. Yeah. And oh, my God, it's brilliant. Like, I, I love just, it. I love it. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, being a demon was supposed to mean that you had no free will, but you couldn't hang around humans for very long without learning a thing or two. Right. And I think that that also holds true for Aziraphale. Mm-hmm. But I wonder, like, do angels and demons actually not have free will? Do they obey out of the fear of consequences? Or is it really because they have different inherent natures than humans, but they can be influenced by humans. I think that you're right. I think it's about the apple. I think Crowley got infected. Mm. I think the demons and angels don't really have that, but he's been around Aziraphale for so long that Aziraphale's kind of picked up secondhand apple. <laughs> Maybe so. You know, I mean, that he's he's sort of being influenced by it through Crowley, but Crowley's the one who really has it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because without Crowley, we don't mm-hmm. see a lot of this from Aziraphale. Yeah, no, I, Aziraphale would just be rolling along. Yeah. You know, playing the role. Sorry. He doesn't even think about it. But he loves all those books. Mm-hmm. He loves yeah. all those books. And it's really funny because that's, that's the actual 
font of knowledge, right? right? You know, these, this shared human thought that happens through communications, you know, methods like books, mm -hmm. you know? So here he has all these books that he loves so much. I mean, he must be somewhat influenced by that. I think so too. And then I think he also gets influenced by the books. Yeah. And speaking of books, it, when we first met Newton Pulsiver, mm -hmm. when we get this scene of this 12 year old boy that makes no sense right. in context. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make sense to me until we get to the last sentence there that shows he's connected to the book, yes. which mm -hmm. Ananthema Device has. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fascinating that it is the only accurate book of prophecies in the world, and Aziraphale doesn't know it exists. Yeah. So then you have, like, the only accurate source of knowledge in the hands of a child. Yes. Which I also think is fascinating. Mm-hmm this whole idea of what is contained in a book and how do we contain knowledge and how do we share it and how do we pass it down and what does it mean? And, oh my God, I love it. Like, I just freaking love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And then we get to naming, you know, mm -hmm. the Antichrist and Mr. Young settles on Adam, which I don't know where Mrs. Young is during this conversation or if she cares right. what they name her kid. Why should she have an opinion? I mean, she's, right? She's already done her part. <laughs> yeah. God. And and it's interesting because depending on your interpretation of the Garden of Eden story, like humanity's first experimentation with free will didn't go so well. Right. But free will really seems to be the thesis of the story. So naming this, you know, this child, this Antichrist, Adam, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is a really interesting echo. Yeah. I love that. And now I want to move to Dorking. They're <laughs> <laughs> like, Dorking, sorry. I was like, there's a place called Dorking. I must live there. Like, it's a verb? I don't know what it is. <laughs> but it feels very on brand for me. <laughs> I think it could be pretty great. <laughs> and I like, so we get the babies, you know, everybody's home mm -hmm. and Hager burns down the convent. Yeah. So it's up in flames. And then we get to Aziraphale and Crowley's arrangement, mm -hmm. which is capitalized, which yes. I love. Yes. And they're really friends now even though i don't think yeah. either one of them really wants to admit it oh i think crowley would yeah you think? i think crowley would maybe I think so he, yeah yeah maybe so and the arrangement it says on page 39 made certain that while neither won, neither really lost and both mm -hmm. were able to demonstrate to their masters the great strides they were making against a cunning and well-informed adversary <laughs> <laughs> And the whole thing with that duck pond being oh, the God. place that all the secret agents meet up and the ducks are like, they know what kind of bread to expect from each agent. Is, is I know. So See, this is the kind of thing like it's an adorable little aside. Uh huh. You know, it's got all that adorable little like detail in it. But in the end. After a certain time, I'm like, all right, like this is and this is the thing that Pratchett does. But like, I love Terry Pratchett, but it is this like uh, this little tiny detail that's so funny. And so but it does nothing to do with the actual story that's going on. <laughs> I'm just like, can we move forward from the ducks now? <laughs> can we please move on from the ducks? After a while, I feel like the the enchantment, um, you know, the delight they take in their own little ideas can sometimes get them a little off track. Yeah, maybe so. But they are delightful little ideas. They you know? are. They mm -hmm. are. And and I love seeing how Crowley knows all of Aziraphale's weak spots because Aziraphale really does love the world, too. 
you know, and when Crowley's telling him about all the things that he'll miss in heaven, yeah. it's like no bookshops, no interesting old editions. You mm-hmm. know, if heaven wins, life may be better, but it will be less interesting. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> so great. And then Crowley makes this really great point, again, like as the speaker of knowledge about yeah. this ineffable plan. He says, you don't have to test everything to destruction just to see if you made it right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, because like, this is why I don't garden, right? Because <laughs> if I planted like a little row of carrots, then mm-hmm. I would want to like pull them up to see if they were growing. Right. And then like put them back. <laughs> you don't uh, have to yeah, test everything. Yeah, no, I'm, everything, I'm exactly like that too. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. To destruction just to see if you made it right. And it's like, yeah, so... <laughs> Is the whole point of the universe and mankind, is it just an experiment to see who's actually greater? Like, which force mm-hmm. is actually going to win? Is it just a big dice game? Yeah. You know, and it's it's just a fascinating question. Yeah. You know, and they and they talk about kind of their their different sides and heaven does not sound like fun. Like, I'm with Billy Joel, man. Yeah. Yeah. Give me the sinners instead of the saints because good Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it does, you know, and all of the people who say that they're definitely going to heaven are people I definitely don't want to be hanging out with. Right. You know? So I'm I like, mean, well, you're really. actually inspiring me to like play for the other. <laughs> but there is this point, though, where Crowley says, anyway, why are we talking about good and evil? They're just names for sides. We know that, you know, right. And that is like an essential calling out of this idea that there just really isn't that much of a difference, that one is only bearable with the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, they demonstrate this so beautifully. And, and it's so funny because they're in Crowley's car and they pass that traffic warden who's riding Crowley's ticket, you know, after he like clamped down the car. Right. And Aziraphale sets it on fire. Yep. And then blushes with guilt, you know, and and then they each think that the other side is responsible for traffic cops. Uh, <laughs> like, I thought uh, that was your uh, invention. Uh, oh, no, uh, I thought that was yours. <laughs> it's so fantastic. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things that they don't know, mm-hmm. you know, who did what. They're like, wait, was that you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I find that really, it's really interesting because good and evil seem to be two sides of the same coin. Yep. One can't exist without the other. And nothing's any good without both, I guess, to a certain extent. I mean, there's a certain amount of evil that just is too evil. Right. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 interesting when you start looking at it, you know, it, it can be a little frustrating because it's so hard to come down to a solid place. Yeah. In that discussion. Yeah. Because you don't want evil. Evil's no. evil. Evil does bad things. Mm-hmm. But good, good isn't like, you know, ultimate good. Yeah. Boring. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's fascinating. Okay, so then we have to talk about my very, very, very favorite thing about Aziraphale. Because he is an angel who collects books. Mm-hmm. I knew you'd like that. <laughs> oh, my God. It's so great. And uh-huh. I love that he owns a bookshop just so he has a place to keep them all. Right. And that he, he does, like, everything possible to stop somebody from actually buying a book. Yes. <laughs> 
short of physical violence. Everything <laughs> short of physical violence. short of that. I love it. But he specializes in books of prophecy and infamous Bibles. Mm-hmm. And when I first heard about these Bibles, which, you know, is actually like a thing in a, in a yeah. major area for collection oh, of these yeah. typos, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the Bible that says thou shall commit adultery and just <laughs> like all of these <laughs> these typos that are you know famous and get collected Mm -hmm. and i love that he has the unrighteous bible and the wicked bible but also the bugger all this bible i know (laughs) but then we get the one that xerophel actually added a footnote to Mm -hmm. and the lord spoke unto the angel that guarded the eastern gate saying where is the flaming sword which was given unto thee and the angel said i had it here only a moment ago i must have put it down somewhere forget my own head next and the lord did not ask him again <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> it's so great oh god it's adorable it's so great and uh, so and then we meet agnes nutter right from mm-hmm. like 1653 and she yep. is you know psychic and she has all these prophecies and and prophecy books were all the rage yeah, And I love that she taps into this publishing trend, even though she has the foresight to know that this book yes, is not going to sell <laughs> because she wanted the one free copy they give to the author. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like the one that gets passed down and, and that we mm-hmm. see, you know, now with her descendant. It's so great. Oh, God. And then we get Crowley and Aziraphale together, you know, and it mm-hmm. says it was now three o'clock. The Antichrist had been on earth for 15 hours and one angel and one demon had been drinking solidly for three of them. Because I'm like, yes, that's what you do in a time of an apocalypse. (laughs) Okay, now he does. Okay, this whole drunken scene, too. Like, I swear to God, I am a joyless asshole. I really am. (laughs) This whole drunken scene. They're having this whole argument. He's like about the bird that for a thousand years and sharpens its beak on the mountain and then comes back and does it every thousand years in a spaceship. Sure, in a spaceship, whatever the fuck. And then he comes back. And at the end of it, you still will not have seen the end of the sound of music. (laughs) (laughs) Which is funny because um, I hate the sound of music. (laughs) And it is interminable. And I get the joke. But that was a lot of running around for that joke. And then they're like, okay, let's sober up and talk about the narrative now. Okay. You know? <laughs> and it's a page and a half of this, this fucking bird going to the sharpest <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So you know, the whole point of that, I guess, is that the sound of music is, is, belongs to heaven. Yes. And then that's the only movie he's going to have to watch. That's the only in-flight option. Which is another reason to, you know, not let the apocalypse happen. Exactly. You know? okay. But <laughs> exactly. Jesus. Yeah. But then they get to this really great conversation, right, about this baby. Mm-hmm. And because Crowley is trying to convince Aziraphale to help him keep this Antichrist, well, the baby they think is the Antichrist, free mm-hmm. of overdue influence. Um, and it's such a great nature versus nurture argument. Yeah. You know, and Aziraphale is like, look, it's in his genetics. This is Satan's kid. And Crowley says, no, look at Satan. He was created mm-hmm. as an angel. He grows up to be the great adversary. Mm-hmm. This child is both potentially evil and potentially good. And mm-hmm. I'm like, every human is basically Schrodinger's soul. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
but no one is inherently good or inherently evil. And I love the fact that they're planning together, like actually how to educate this child again, using knowledge, this kid. Yeah. Yeah. But they're influencing him through knowledge of both sides. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really Crowley's idea, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's not sneaky. Well, no, I mean, he does talk Aziraphale into it. Because Aziraphale is like, well, it's the ineffable plan. Right. We're going to win, so I'm not going to worry about it. I can just sit here and do nothing. You know, and Crowley's like, look, if you're thwarting evil, right. then you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You know, so, like, Crowley's doing what he has to do, which is send this, you know, terrible nurse to go with <laughs> Nanny to go and take care of him and, uh, and you know, make him evil. And then, you know, and then uh, Zeraphel is sending, you know, uh, emissaries of goodness to this kid. Um, and the kid, of course, as we know now, uh, because we're reading this from the omniscient POV, uh, is, is just a regular kid. Yeah. <laughs> Here he yeah. is, named Warlock, and he's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's just... But it's interesting that the force for good that Aziraphale sends is a gardener. Mm-hmm. And we're going back to the gardener, but the and then they're yeah. the nanny and the gardener are both replaced with tutors when he's old enough yeah. to read and start studying. But the mm-hmm. the way that they're influencing this child is through knowledge, and then they're it's it's very hands off. It's just let yeah. us show you both sides, right. and of then truth. you choose exactly. And that's the thing is that they're actually doing the experiment right with this kid. You know that like the kid or the that people until they have. The option of being definitively wicked and then choose goodness, you know? So here is this kid being given definitive wickedness mm-hmm. and goodness, you know, in equal measure. And you just have to see which one he chooses. Yeah. And I love so much that both tutors read to him equally from the book of Revelation. Yes. <laughs> yes. Once again, showing you that this whole good and evil shtick. They're not separate things. Right. Right. You know? It's yeah. fascinating. It's fascinating. It is. But this reminds me that this episode of Welcome to the End Times is brought to you by Aziraphale's Angelic Books You Can't Actually Buy.com. <laughs> this carefully curated collection includes such holy treasures as the Bizarro World Bible. Edited by our very own Lonnie Diane Rich and Joshua Unruh after one too many hours of drunk podcasting. This hand-annotated edition includes a story hallelujah introduction, a revision of Isaiah 43.1 as fear not. Trust me, it'll be fun. The missing book of our Lord and Savior All-Star Superman and the book of Revelation drawn as a comic with MCU Easter eggs. Rob Hyrett's Forget the Angels and Demons, The Apocalypse is a Battle Between Jedi and Sith. (laughs) Noelle LaCroix's Nice and Accurate Prophecies to Smash the Patriarchy, The Future is Female. And The Research Commandments, Thou Shall Define Your Terms, Do the Damn Reading, and Cite Your Sources, (laughs) written by yours truly. Go to Aziraphale's Angelic's Books You Can't Actually Buy.com and use the code Have a Nice Doomsday for 15% off your first order, which will never arrive because Aziraphale crossed over to the dark side when he figured out he could sell books online but never ship any. <laughs> 
Ineffably, you want to spend your money on these fantastic works, but you can't because they don't exist. And even if they did, Aziraphale would hide them in the back of his bookshop with Crowley's favorite wine. But you can take the dollars you would have spent and give them directly to Chipperish Media so we can continue our mission as the five podcasters of the apocalypse, at least until the world ends, which we hear will happen next Saturday, just after tea. But hey, Discord will probably survive Armageddon so you can hang out with us and all the other Chipper saints and sinners in digital purgatory and keep talking about the stories you love. Go to patreon.com slash chipperish to join in on the good deeds of the day. <laughs> I love when you write those. <laughs> I love when you write those. It's always those. such a delight. <laughs> I would totally buy that Bible, by the way. Oh, no, I totally would. I would buy all of those books. <laughs> We obviously need to have everybody writing. <laughs> I mean, write? Become a publishing house, too. What the hell? Why oh, not? I got time. Not? That's a great idea. <laughs> right. Except you're good. So if you sell books, you'll actually ship them to people. <laughs> I probably would. <laughs> so then we transition into four new points of view so that we can meet the four horse persons of the apocalypse, mm-hmm. yes. which I kind of like. Mm-hmm. So we meet War, a.k.a. Scarlet, who arrives in the peaceful African town of Cambodian on Wednesday. And by Friday, mm-hmm. the city is a no-go area. <laughs> oh, God. So by the, and it says by the following Tuesday, the economy was shattered. 20,000 people were dead. Almost 100,000 people were injured. And all of her weapons had fulfilled the function for which they had been created. <laughs> so oh my God. we kind of have this, you know, weapons smuggler mm-hmm. person. And it's interesting that we're seeing each of them kind of in their human form. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and you're you're having to sort of read between the lines to, to figure out who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get Sable, you know, a.k.a. Famine, making mm-hmm. millions from diet culture books and right. a fake medical degree and fancy deprivation restaurants. And he takes such pleasure in watching rich people starve themselves. Right. But also, like, I really want to sit that guy down and have a conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then White, a.k.a. Pollution, who's weaponizing science, which I also thought was mm-hmm. really interesting. He's inventing yeah. plastics and gas engines and causing oil spills. But he's described as easy to forget, yeah. which I think is a really interesting take on pollution in general and the the mm-hmm. author's choice to use that mm-hmm. as one of the you know they're kind of shaking up that traditional role of, right. of that mm-hmm. writer and then we get death with no name like he we don't get his human yeah form mm-hmm. who was there through you know every other act that we've mm-hmm. seen because he's always there and right. it says there's nowhere he was a stranger and there was no getting away from him which is, is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But all until this point, the book has really emphasized the power of free will. Right. But mm-hmm. then the horse person seemed to thwart free will or to influence yeah. people no, so because she walks into that town. Yeah. And they're fine. It's been a peaceful town. Everybody there is happy. And within, you know, a couple of days, she's got the whole thing going. So, yeah, it does seem to. And the thing, like, too, is that you've got war, famine, and pestilence, all of which kind of feed into death mm-hmm. like death seems to be and he is he's everywhere right he's part of everything at the same time imagine a world without death right like do you want to be four thousand years old i'm i'm not <laughs> sure i want to make it to 85 i don't think i'm gonna enjoy that it depends 
you know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but like, I'm, but that's also like death is living a full life with love and happiness. And then at the end, you know, you transition into whatever else. Like death is not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. Mm -hmm. There is a time for it, you know? Yeah. But overall, I don't know. Like I'm I'm not that much of a fan of these four horse persons mm -hmm. thing. Like again, it's it's I feel like they've they've gotten delighted with a particular idea and they've had fun with that idea. But it's not the story. Mm. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess maybe it is a little bit, but I don't know. Like, I just, we went through all four. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. I get it. Let's just like, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. I'm interested in Crowley. I'm interested in Aziraphale. Everything else is, you know, the longer you make me dance around with chattering nuns, like, I just, like, I don't care. <laughs> nuns and ducks. We know what and you I like. And I mean, I like, you know, Anathema, I'm enjoying, you know, Newton Pulsifer, I'm in for all of that, you know. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but yeah, no, this is, uh, it's just, it's nonsense after. And I just like, I, I, I think it's me, like, because it's delightful in and of itself in the moment, mm -hmm. you know, but I'm like, all right, let's just, let's go. Yeah. Let's do the rest of this thing. We've got stuff going on. Let's, you know. <laughs> it's the most interesting to me because of the questions it raises about free will. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So you have free will unless you're tangling with a horseman. Then you don't. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. so like, what does that mean? And then what does it even matter to have free will if there are forces that can override it? And it, it's just really interesting. Right. But I, yeah. I think this question of free will comes out so beautifully in the last section here where we get the education mm -hmm. of the Antichrist. Yes. And I love this description on page 82 of, of Crowley and Aziraphale's arrangement. Mm -hmm. It says the arrangement worked perfectly. A no score win. In the background, mm -hmm. Crowley and Aziraphale met on top of buses and in art galleries <laughs> and at concerts <laughs> and compared notes and smiled. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I think that's how we should have chippers meetings from now on. I think so, too. I think we should go to the tops of buses. The tops of buses, man. It would be great. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but then Crowley, and again, Crowley is the one who notices this. Crowley's the mm -hmm. one who raises the question. He's concerned about how normal Warlock is because right. he's almost 11 and he should be able to warp the world around him. Like, in fact, he should be doing that mm -hmm. without trying. Right. You know, and so it's, he's about to turn 11 and hell is sending this hellhound, which apparently mm -hmm. is, is part of turning 11 when you're the Antichrist. Right. And it's very important that the child name the dog himself because the name mm -hmm. will give the dog its purpose and character. Mm -hmm. So I find it fascinating that that has to be the choice of the child, right. that the power of a name can give a thing its purpose. Yes. You know, and then I wondered why 11? Because... Mm -hmm. I know, like, the two universes are not connected at all, but that's also the age that kids in the Harry Potter world get their Hogwarts letters. Yeah. Seven is traditionally the age of reason. Right. You know, and around six or seven is when most kids learn how to write. And I don't mm -hmm. really know what it is about 11 that sets it apart, but it was just a really interesting idea to me. And I don't, yeah. I don't know exactly what it means, but I think it's, it's just fascinating. Yeah. I don't know. I, I've. I've had seven-year-olds in my house. <laughs> I wouldn't define that as the age of reason. Eleven, I think, at eleven, a kid can have a little bit more understanding of the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, not a complete understanding of the world. I'm 47, and I still don't have a complete command of the world. But I think that that there is something about eleven 
that like that's the earliest you can expect a kid to like start to get it mm-hmm. you know yeah so yeah i don't know but that, so that's kind of where we're ending so there's about to be this mm-hmm. birthday party this hellhound is coming and both crowley and aziraphale have decided they're going to be there yeah. <laughs> it's just to witness how this goes down <laughs> and then i had this one other tiny little note from the very beginning of this that i love mm-hmm. the fact that they included earth's horoscope right. and that earth is a libra <laughs> because of course it is of course it is. <laughs> it was so great. It was so great. <laughs> so I think we're off to a very intriguing start here. Yeah, I like it. So what was your favorite part? Oh, God. It's the love story mm-hmm. between Crowley and Aziraphale. I mean, absolutely. I love this on page 44. The arrangement was very simple. So simple, in fact, that it didn't really deserve the capital letter, which it had got for simply being in existence for so long. It was the sort of sensible arrangement that many isolated agents working in awkward conditions a long way from their superiors reach with their opposite number when they first realize that they have more in common with their immediate opponents than the remote allies. I love that. I love the friendship. I love the connection between these characters. It is a love story. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. How about you? What's your favorite part? So I really love the the philosophical questions. And I love Crowley Mm -hmm. as the, you know, sort of as the personification of of critical thought. Mm -hmm. But on page 34, he's, he's thinking about people you know just as humanity as a whole yeah and he says and just when you think they were more malignant than hell could ever be they occasionally show more grace than heaven ever dreamed of often the same individual was involved it was the free will thing of course Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i just love that because every person has such capacity you know and the power of choice yeah is, is just such an important part of what it means to be human and i don't know how often we actually just sit around and think about that because we don't have three thousand years right Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i love how it plays out and i love the fact that it's a demon asking these questions yeah absolutely yep no it's very very cool i like it a lot so we have much interesting reading ahead of us if the world does in fact remain around that long <laughs> yeah if the world lasts for another week that's right we'll see we'll see it's it's certainly not certain <laughs> <laughs> to join in the discussion on twitter follow me at lonnie diane rich and kelly at dr kelly jones and use the hashtag chipper end times this episode of welcome to the end times was brought to you by abby who supports chippers media at the power producer level and as such gets to not so much fall as saunter vaguely downward. Thank you, Abby, and thank you to everyone who supports Shippers Media and supports our efforts to avert the coming apocalypse. Visit patreon.com slash to find out how you, too, can make everything we do at Shippers Media free and ad-free for everyone. You can also show your support for Welcome to the End Times by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a review or telling your friends about the show and Chipperish Media or by giving thousands of souls a patina of tarnish without hardly having to lift a finger. We will be back next time with Wednesday, which in my paperback version is pages 65 to 113. Until then, you know I don't play a harp. And you know I don't use a pitchfork. I was just being rhetorical. Best, best friends! (laughs) Get thee behind me, evil fiend. (laughs) I love your best, best friends. You're so cute. Best, best friends. Best, best friends. (laughs) 
going to be like this all day. Okay. I apologize. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's fine. We should go get wine. What yes. time is it? Oh, dear God. It's 30. She says as she sits here with a mocha. Mocha and vodka? <laughs> mocha and whiskey? <laughs> like, wait, it's not too early to drink, is it? It's 2.30. It's Sunday. It's past brunch. It's past brunch. <laughs> Let me try that again. You know, and it said, and the Lord spake unto the angel that gardened it. Uh, damn it. Gardened? I can't say. Every time <laughs> I do it, I'm like, gardened. It's the garden of evil. That uh, I mean, the garden of evil. Garden damn of it. evil. It the, is. The garden See, I'm of telling you, Eden. it is the garden of fucking evil. It is the garden of evil. That but, was some evil shit going down yeah, there. But that's what you do there. You garden. Yeah. <laughs> Say the word garden. It's hilarious. All right. So now we shift again and we get four different points of view to meet the four horror person. (laughs) (laughs) Thou shall be slutty. Thou shall be slutty. Oh, that's a book I could have written too. Four steps to becoming the slut you were meant to be. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm bad at transitions. (laughs) Nah, don't worry about it. No, it's not easy to do. It's all right. I'll edit it. It'll be fine. That may end up going at the end. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) 